Please bow with me. Father, we come to your word this morning asking that you would speak, O Lord, speak to us the truth of your word, speak word of life this morning. Lord, we pray that you would use this time in your word to bring fruit in our lives, to draw us into deeper fellowship with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you could have a meal with anyone alive today, who would it be? Maybe a family member or a friend that you haven't seen in a while that's in a different part of the country or world. Uh, maybe a, a world leader. Maybe a, a president you'd like to sit down and talk with and learn more about decisions that they make. Uh, maybe your favorite author or actor. You've benefited from their, their work. You'd love to sit down and talk with them. Maybe it's an athlete that you love to watch on television. But who would it be if, if you could meet with anyone alive today? But what if I told you that along with anyone alive today, God is an option of who you could share a meal with? Sit and share a meal, fellowship with Him. Lord, the Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of the Bible, that you could have a meal with Him. Well, that's the opportunity that Abraham had, a meal with God. It was a, a meal that he would never forget. It's a meal that the people of God will never forget because it's recorded for us in the pages of the Bible in Genesis chapter 18. And as we look at Genesis 18 today, we see that this meal that Abraham shared with God served as an illustration of what life in the covenant would look like. Life in the covenant is a life in God's presence, a life of knowing God's power behind His promises. Turn with me to Genesis 18. We're going to spend our time in verses 1 through 15 this morning. If you want to use that pew Bible in front of you, you can take that pew Bible and turn to page 12 in your pew Bibles. And we say this every week, but if you've come this morning and you don't own a Bible, we want to give that Bible to you as a gift. Uh, you're welcome to take that home and read it. And we'd love to connect you with someone here that could read the Bible with you. Talk to one of the members around us or see one of our pastors at the top of the ramp of the guest tent afterwards. We're going to be in Genesis 18. Let me read for us starting in verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah, and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. 
the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? The appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Genesis chapter 18. We're going to spend our time in this section this morning. In Genesis chapter 17, last week, we saw this covenant with Abraham being clarified and expanded. And there were two main new features. It wasn't a new covenant, but there were two new features. There were new names given in that chapter, mainly for Abraham and Sarah, this new name that would reflect that God would make Abraham the father of a multitude of nations. And Sarah, that kings and nations would come from her. And God gave a a seal and a sign of that covenant, a new sign, circumcision. And the tension of the chapter last week was, would Abraham obey? And we see the chapter anywhere he did, and he took that sign on himself and administered it to every male in his camp just as God had commanded. You see, God was preparing Abraham for a life with him, a life walking in the presence of God. He was preparing Abraham for life in the covenant, a life of faith and obedience. What we find here in the first part of chapter 18 is a, is a real illustration. So it's an illustration, but it's a, a real story, a, a real moment in, in history that shows what the fulfillment of these covenant promises would look like. Life in this covenant with God would be a, a life lived in God's presence, a, a life witnessing the power of God that is behind His promises. This story in Genesis 18, it, it shows us that God draws near to His people. God draws near to His people to to lead them away from doubt and to deeper faith. Well, I outlined this morning as we make our way through this passage, I want you to see two blessings of life with God. Two blessings of life with God. The first blessing we find in in verses 1 through 8, God's people enjoy regular fellowship with him. First blessing there in verses 1 through 8, God's people enjoy regular fellowship with him. Once again, the Lord appeared to Abraham here, but why has he returned? Well, we understand more of that starting down in, in verse 10. The Lord had an announcement to make about the son he had promised to Abraham and Sarah. But, but immediately there in verse 2, there's a sudden shift to this group of three men standing there in front of Abraham. And it really is no mystery who these three men are. The narrator of Genesis, Moses, makes that clear for us. These three men were the Lord and two angels. That's why verse 1 says, the Lord appeared to him. Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, was one of these three men, basically coming in the form of a man. And in the next chapter, chapter 19, at the very beginning, you see that the two angels, they continue on there to Sodom. So the whole chapter is to be understood in the context of the Lord appearing. 
Now, these types of appearing, they're not uncommon in the Scriptures. We've already seen this several times in the book of, of Genesis. And throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see the Lord appearing, Himself making announcements, sending angels to make announcements and to deliver, deliver promises to speak God's Word to human beings. Right? In Judges 6, an angel appears there to Gideon to call him to save Israel. Uh, Luke chapter 1, an angel appeared there to foretell the birth of John the Baptist, and then later another angel to foretell the birth of of Jesus there in Luke chapter 1. And with the appearing of Jesus, the the Son of God, with His death on the cross and His resurrection, and with the fullness of God's Word being contained in the Bible, we understand God has spoken. And today, God speaks to His people normally through the truth of His Word. He's come and shown Himself and appeared in Jesus And He appears and speaks His Word regularly to us through the power of His Holy Spirit, through the truth of His Word. Now Moses, the narrator of Genesis, made it clear in verse 1 that the Lord appeared with the visitation from this group. However, the identity of these three visitors may not have been immediately clear to Abraham. So some debate exists among scholars. Did Abraham recognize immediately this was the Lord? Or did he recognize this like mid-conversation more around verses 9 through 10? I've kind of gone back and forth this week. Scholars disagree, and these men, they've spent uh, years and years and years studying this book. I get one week, I go back and forth on it. But I tend to land more on verse 9 and 10 is when he understood this was the Lord. It seems to fit with how Moses unpacks the section, first referring to them as three men, and then in verse 10, making it clear the Lord was speaking. Now, either way, we see that Abraham, he quickly moved to greet this group, and he showed them hospitality. At the end of verse 2, we see that Abraham had some idea that these men were important as he bowed down. It was an act of, of humility, and whether he was aware at that moment or not, he was bowing before the Lord God Almighty. In verse 3, notice that the title Lord used there, that that Abraham used, it's not in all capital letters like what you see in your translation there in verse 1, when the word Lord is in all capital letters. That title in verse 1, we've talked about this before, it's God's covenant name, Yahweh. This title in verse 3, Lord, you'll see that it has lowercase letters there. It's a common title in the Old Testament that could be used to refer to a person, an authority, kind of like a respectful greeting, as well as it's used to refer to the Lord as a divine name. Now, since Abraham, I think, likely thought he was talking to a regular man at this point, this title would be heard more like Sir. He's showing respect and honor as he greets this group. He welcomed them and showed them hospitality. Now, it was a normal practice in those days to show hospitality and to welcome in those who were traveling. We see that they were in the heat of the day there. It was hot. They needed to take a a water break and a rest. Uh, They weren't in air-conditioned vehicles back then. They didn't have exit ramps that would take you right to a Chick-fil-A to rest and get what you needed. Uh, Travelers were largely dependent on the hospitality and the care of others. These men needed a place to rest, and in Abraham they found hospitality. Now, while Abraham offered them a chance to have some water and to have a morsel of bread, we see in verses 6 through 8, he prepared far more than that for them. He prepared a full-out meal for them. He rushed into the tent when his wife Sarah was and had her baked bread. So, three sias of a fine flour. A sia is a, a measuring unit that equals around two gallons. 
So in other words, he was saying, bake a lot of, of bread. But he treated this group, again, with more than just water and bread, which would have been a kind gesture in itself. He prepared a calf, curds and, and milk. That was a feast, a, a royal banquet that he set before these three men. A, a royal banquet being presented to the Lord. Now, this is the only instance in the Bible before the incarnation of God that God ate a meal with a human being. So there's something significant for us here in understanding God coming in the form of a man to share a meal. Now in the ancient world, meals were often a feature of entering into a covenant. So we've said there are biblical covenants, but covenants were just common in that day where one king, like a greater king, would make a covenant to protect a a lesser king who wasn't as great and didn't have as great of a nation or an army. And oftentimes when these covenants were entered into between two kings, they would mark that by sharing a meal together. They would share a meal as a sign of a, a peaceful agreement. We'll consider this a setting of a meal with God and Abraham illustrated the fulfillment of the covenant. God and Abraham would live at peace with one another, in in fellowship with one another, in, in unity, God and man. And a meal was used to mark this occasion. So the setting used by the Lord to once again appear, to once again guarantee the covenant promise concerning the birth of Isaac was a meal. Let's also consider the significance here in chapter 18 that the Lord appeared to Abraham in the form of a man. Now, previously the Lord had spoken audibly to Abraham. He had already appeared to Abraham. But here, the Lord God Almighty appeared in the form of of a man. And while this is different from the incarnation, the incarnation is when Jesus, the God-man, fully God, fully man, came down from heaven to earth for the purpose of dying and paying the penalty for sin. This is different from the incarnation, but at the same time, we see our God appearing, though momentarily, in the form of a man, and he shares a meal with Abraham. Well, consider that, a man, a a meal, company, fellowship. Remember this, the the greatest blessing of the covenant was God's presence. God saying, I will be your God. God marking off Abraham and through him his descendants as the people of God. You see, the covenant promises, they were based on a close and personal and intimate relationship between God and Abraham and therefore his descendants after him. This covenant promise that that I will be your God was illustrated through through God condescending in the form of a man to share a meal. Furthermore, the the meal here that the Lord shared, it it points to fellowship. It points to spiritual intimacy between God and His people. That's what life in the covenant would look like. Spiritual intimacy with the God who created you, with the God that you've sinned against. Him providing a way to live in fellowship and relationship and unity with Him. It's an illustration here that God draws near to make Himself intimately known by his people. His presence is the blessing of life and the covenant. Well, the story of the Bible is all about the presence of God with his people. We've made our way through Genesis, and we saw Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 that God created Adam and Eve as his people to live in his place, to live in fellowship with him under his authority and under his reign. 
We saw in Genesis chapter 3 that Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They sinned against Him and they were banished from the Garden of Eden. And what they lost that day was not just an awesome place where there was a lot of good fruit to eat and animals were chill, like you could hang out with them and they wouldn't attack you and you didn't have any sort of conflict with your spouse. There was a lot of stuff lost. But the main gift, the, most, the greatest thing that was lost that day, a relationship with God, life in fellowship with Him. And God was so quick in Genesis 3, verse 15, to show His plan, to proclaim His plan for redemption. And from that chapter forward, the rest of Genesis, and indeed the rest of the Bible, is about God's plan for redemption. Purchasing a people who would live in His presence. Buying back a people to live in fellowship with God. It's the rest of the story of the Bible. And through this covenant with Abraham, God was building a people who would know him and enjoy fellowship with him in his presence. As the story of the Old Testament unfolds, and from Abraham to God's covenant with Moses, and then later with, with David, all of these covenants in the Old Testament look forward to what God would do in the New Testament, in this new covenant, and manifesting the presence of God through the person of Jesus Christ. While the story in Genesis 18 was not the incarnation, I think it certainly anticipates Jesus, the Son of God, coming down to earth to live life fully as God and fully as man. You see, Jesus in the incarnation, He came to earth to die and pay for the sins of anyone who would turn and trust in Him. You see, it's not possible to enter the presence of God with sin in your life. Sinful people can't live in fellowship with a holy God. That's why Jesus came. He came to make a way for us back to God. Through His death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead, Jesus made a way for us to be forgiven of our sins. Penalty paid. Debt that we owe God because of our sin paid for in full. Jesus came to reconcile us to the God who created us, to bring us into a relationship with God. But if we're going to enjoy fellowship with God, you have to have your sins forgiven. Well, I ask you this morning, how are your sins being forgiven? How are your sins being dealt with? For the Christian, our response is Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. We couldn't deal with sin on our own. We can't pay God back the debt that we owe. We can't be good enough to make things right with God. But there was one who came from the line of Abraham, a king, just like Sarah was promised that kings would come from her, namely a king, King Jesus, who came and laid his life down. His king accomplished victory by dying, not as an accident, not as a life that was too quickly taken away, but rather he came to die. That was the point of his ministry, to lay his life down as a sacrifice for sin. And through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, Jesus made a way, the only way, for us to be forgiven of our sin against God. The only way for us to be made right with the God who created us. The only way for us to live a life in fellowship with God and to be filled with the presence of God. The Holy Spirit to enjoy life with Him in this life and fully and forevermore in the next. And the good news of Jesus is that all who trust in Jesus are brought into a covenant relationship with God, a life of knowing God's power, a life of knowing God's love. Indeed, all those who live in this new covenant 
are filled with the presence of God now and forevermore. Well, this theme of eating and drinking before the presence of the Lord, it's it's really seen throughout the Scriptures. So consider a, a regular way that we as a church are commanded to remember the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. A meal. The Lord instituted a a supper. So the new covenant was celebrated with the Lord instituting a a covenantal meal. And we regularly take the Lord's Supper here at our church. We take it the second Sunday of the month. We take that as an ongoing reminder. It's commanded by Jesus, a way to remember the love of Jesus demonstrated in giving his body for us and shedding his blood for us and dying on the cross. And that supper that we take together as a church, it looks forward to another meal, one in glory, when God makes all things new. What Revelation chapter 19 verse 7 calls the marriage supper of the Lamb, when all of God's people enjoy all of God's presence, starting there at a meal. See, a life with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, is a life of fellowship with Him. Throughout the Scriptures, we see that fellowship signified, illustrated by a meal. I think it has its roots all the way back here to Genesis chapter 18, the first time we see God sitting with a human being and enjoying a meal. Well, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're glad that you've come. Again, we, we, we welcome you every week to come and to hear more about who God is in the pages of the Bible, what He's done through His Son, Jesus Christ, in the pages of the Bible. But if you're here today, we, we want you to know something. There may be a lot of things that you feel like you need in life, but the greatest need you have, in fact, the most important need that informs all other needs, you need fellowship with God. You need to be brought into a relationship with God. You need the presence of God in your life. And Jesus is the only way to know the presence of God. Jesus is the only way to have your sins forgiven. Jesus is the only way to welcome and receive the presence of God into your life. I wonder what's keeping you from that. I wonder what's keeping you from turning away from sin, repenting of that sin, to trust in Jesus, to know and embrace and live in the presence of God now and forever in heaven in the next life. You know, I'd invite you to talk to someone who invited you this morning. Talk through that. What's keeping you from repenting of sin and turning to trust in God to know His presence through His Son, Jesus Christ. Talk to one of our pastors afterwards. We'll be at the top of the ramp. We'd love to talk with you more about this greatest need that you have. And brother and sister in the Lord, it's important for us to understand that the Christian life is lived in fellowship with the Lord. There's no greater blessing than knowing the presence of God. There is no greater life than living life in the presence of God. We're told in Psalm 16 that in His presence there is fullness of joy. And so we know that the greatest way to know joy in life is to know God. We've already been given what we long for. We've already been given what we need and God giving us Himself. And so I think, therefore, the call, Christian brother and sister, keep welcoming the presence of God in your life. Keep pursuing the presence of God in your life. Keep growing in fellowship with God. Your greatest days of fellowship with the Lord don't have to be like back when you first were converted. They don't have to be back in college when you're really passionate and really excited about God. I know a lot of us had that experience. We praise God for that. But really, are our best days behind us? Or does the Lord offer us more? 
The question is, are we hungry for more? Do we ask Him for more? Do we even look back on those days and consider, what is it that the Lord used to fuel our hunger for Him back in those days? And how can we maybe get back to some of those basic things that before life got so complex and so busy and filled with so many anxieties and worries that we just simply enjoyed God, enjoyed His presence? Brother and sister, that's the call for us today. What a great life to know God and to enjoy Him. That's what life in the covenant is like. Well, I wonder what it would look like in your life to make more room for fellowship with God this week. What would that look like in your life? I think it starts here. I really do. I used to, for for a lot of my days as a Christian early on, a younger man, I would primarily see growing in fellowship as my daily devotions and studying and praying. That's so important. Give time this week to daily devotions. Give time to regular reading of the Bible and prayer. I, I think that is so important. But I think my theology and my mindset changed as time went on to understand. I think it starts here. You see, God through Abraham was forming a people, a people, like a corporate group for His glory. And when I came to understand that, I understood the fellowship of the local church is where we know the fellowship of the Spirit, as the Spirit is, is uh, every person who is in Christ, a member of this church, is filled with the Spirit, and we share that fellowship together. It's meant to help us know God and to grow our hunger for God. And I came to view that my, my devotions through the week, I think, are actually fueled by my time of worship with other believers in the Lord. There's, there's no time like Sunday morning. It's a foretaste of what heaven will be like when all of God's people are assembled around the throne, worshiping God forever. So consider what it looks like to come into church, prepared to meet with God. Even though we'd be preparing our minds Saturday night, that Sunday morning is a time to fellowship with the Lord. I know Sunday mornings can be crazy sometimes, getting busy, getting kids ready, all that stuff. Believe me. But I think even on that drive over, it's a time to quiet your heart, prepare for fellowship with God. That's why we try to start our service off that that way every week, a time to, to bow and to pray and to prepare yourself for fellowship with God. We come together as a church and we assemble to seek God's presence, to comfort us and guide us. So seeing Sunday mornings as a chance to fellowship with God, how might that approach the way that how it changed the way that you approach going to a church service and how you plan to be there and how you prepare to be there. Well, certainly throughout the week, I think there's lots of opportunities to meditate on Scripture and to make room in our lives to fellowship with God. The Christian life is all about what you fill your mind with. Uh, Use your phone rather than it being a distraction. Use it as a weapon. There's plenty of great apps to read the Bible, memorize the Bible. There's prayer apps, lots of great ways you can use technology for, for good. About your, your daily responsibilities, think about how you can meditate on Scripture, memorize Scripture to seek deeper fellowship with God. And seeking fellowship with God certainly involves turning away from temptation. We will not hunger for fellowship with God if we are snacking on sin. We're giving ourselves over, just a little snacking on sin. We'll see our hunger for God go away. So, brothers and sisters, let's pray for our own soul. Let's pray for one another that we would grow and walk in deeper fellowship with God. Let's be reminded there is no greater joy than the presence of the Lord. Fellowship 
if the Lord is what we were made new in Christ to enjoy, and let's ask the Lord to bless us with that joy today, that today and this week we'd walk in deeper fellowship with Him. Let's consider a second blessing of a life with God in verses 9 through 15. A second blessing of life with God. God's people remember that nothing is too hard for Him. God's people remember that nothing is too hard for Him. While this chapter began with the Lord eating with Abraham, in the second half of the passage, the attention is turned to His wife, to Sarah. So she wasn't there at the the meal. She remained in the tent. That was customary during that time with male visitors to kind of remain out of sight. And so that's what she was doing. And in verse 9, the attention turned to her with a question coming from this group of men. Where is Sarah, your wife? Now these visitors, they knew her name. They knew her new name, this covenant name. We're not told exactly. I mean, when they walked up, did Abraham say, oh yeah, my wife Sarah, she's in the tent, she's baking a lot of bread, wait for that. I don't know. I think likely this was a moment where when they pronounced her name, I think this is the moment when Abraham knew this is the Lord speaking. Who else can know someone whose intent they haven't seen, they haven't met, they haven't been introduced to, using the covenant name of Sarah, that God would bring kings, nations from her. But at any rate, they knew she was there, and this question, what it served to do in this narrative, is to direct the attention to, to her. The point of the visit was for Sarah to hear this promise of a son with her own ears, to have it restated and repeated for her, just how kind God is. And we know in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, that faith comes from hearing. And the Lord just saw fit for Sarah to hear with her own ears, to hear this promise, to be encouraged and comforted in her faith. God was kind. He was gracious in drawing near and providing a way for her to hear His Word with her own ears. Now with Sarah, she wasn't sitting there with this group and the meal. She listened at the door of the tent. And the Lord said in verse 10, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And this is almost the same announcement of promise that Abraham heard from the Lord back in chapter 17, verse 21. But this announcement here in verse 10 It was directed, again, for Sarah to hear for herself. Well, how would Sarah respond to such news? We saw Abraham responded. He laughed. Well, Moses, the narrator of Genesis, he provides some information in verse 11 that's helpful in understanding her response. So the reader and you and I are already aware Abraham and Sarah were both old, but he also states at the end of verse 11, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So sadly, she was infertile, her whole life. But now the details also given that her years of childbearing had ended due to age. In other words, her reproductive years were over. It wasn't just that she was infertile and growing old, but that conceiving was not humanly possible. It wasn't possible for any woman in her life stage. She was 90 years old. Okay, so if you're a 90-year-old mother, or your 90-year-old grandmother, I have a 90-year-old grandmother still alive, if she came back from a doctor's visit and told me, yeah, I went to the doctor for my checkup this week, and he told me I was pregnant. I was saying, this is wild. We are going to get you a new doctor. 
got to figure out something new for you, right? If, if your nine-year-old mother or grandmother told you that, you would laugh just like you did now. It would be unbelievable to understand. Her childbearing years are over. You might end up laughing in disbelief, and that's what Sarah did. In verse 12, we read that Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Well, back in chapter 17, verse 17, we saw that Abraham laughed in doubt when he heard the Lord announce that Sarah would bear him a son. And now in verse 12, Sarah did the same thing. She laughed to herself, doubting the word of the Lord. Now, her reaction, it was in line with how things naturally work, how things work by, by sight and in human wisdom. She looked at the promise from her angle. She thought there was no way she could enjoy the pleasure of having a child. She was staring, not at the promises of God, but at her circumstances. And I wonder how often that's the case for us as Christians. How often do you find yourself staring at your circumstances rather than the promises of God? We stare at our circumstances. We're filled with anxiety, sadness, maybe even bitterness. When we stare at the promises of God, we can be filled with peace, knowing that the power belongs to God to deliver on His promises. And this promise, it wasn't humanly possible, so the only thing to do was to believe God and to, to wait, that He and He will accomplish and see to it Himself, that His promise is accomplished. Now keep in mind, Sarah, she had been in the tent this whole time. She was, she was eavesdropping. And verse 12 notes that she laughed to herself. That means she laughed within herself. I read at the end of verse 10, she was listening at the tent door behind the Lord. So he wasn't positioned to see her reaction. She was behind him. She laughed to herself in a laugh that was not audible to Abraham and to the others. She laughed inwardly, yet the Lord knew. He turned to Abraham in verse 13 and asked, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Which had to shock Sarah. She probably felt, almost fell through that tent at the moment. That might have been why we see her talking with the Lord directly there at the end. The Lord, He sees and He hears everything. Even the inner thoughts and attitudes of a person. Things you and I can't possibly see. Sometimes we act like we know someone's attitude inwardly. We really don't. It's called judging people. But God knows. He knows the attitude of the heart. He sees and he hears everything. And the Lord knew that she doubted his word. He wasn't confused as to why she laughed. He knew. Again, that, that question was a way to make a point. He knew that she needed assurance. He knew that she needed encouragement to believe his word. He knew that she needed perspective that was shaped by the truth of his word. And he drew near. He came in that moment to encourage Sarah in her faith. What a kind God we serve. What a gracious God we serve. He doesn't deal with us the way we often deal with other people. He's so patient. He is so kind and so gracious. He draws us to deeper faith in Him. That's what a life with God is like. He has the power and the love and the kindness and the will to cause us to persevere until the end. And He does that by drawing us into deeper fellowship with Him. Praise God that our destiny depends on the Lord and His faithfulness. 
and not our own. Well, then in verse 14, one of the greatest questions asked in Scripture, is anything too hard for the Lord? This rhetorical question was used to make a magnificent point. This rhetorical question used to supply the main message of this interaction, that nothing is too hard for the Lord. Nothing is too difficult for Him. You see, from a God-centered perspective, what should have seemed ridiculous is the laughter in response. What should seem ridiculous is not that God would keep His promise and cause a 90-year-old to conceive a child, but rather what should seem ridiculous is to think that something's too hard for the Lord. What should seem ridiculous is that God would not or could not keep His promise. In the last chapter, the Lord revealed a new name for Himself, God Almighty. It's a new name that revealed His power. He is full of power. There's no one like Him. There's nothing too difficult for Him. We sang this morning about His greatness. Who has given counsel to the Lord? Who can question any of His words? Who can teach the one who knows all things? Who can fathom all His wondrous deeds? In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, the apostle Paul marvels in God's ability and in His power. He says, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. He's saying you can't outbelieve God's promises. Therefore, you can't out-ask Him in accordance with His promises. You can't outthink Him. We can't fathom all of His wondrous deeds. We praise Him for His power now as we look dimly and behold Him as in a mirror. Can you imagine the power we're going to know one day, people of God? We stand in His presence. He is full of power and mercy and love. And for those who live in covenant fellowship with the Lord through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, we believe that there is nothing too hard for the Lord. We believe that. We've already confessed that. I think what we see here, we need regular reminders of this truth. We are too quick to forget. We are too quick to live in ways that are out of line with the truth of God. We are in regular need of our strength, being, of our faith being strengthened, of our faith being assured. Well, brother and sister, I, I wonder where you doubt God's power. We thought about this last week. When we doubt God's power and His Word, it's like laughing at God. That really should be a ridiculous response, right? What do you think is too hard for the Lord? The salvation of that family member whose heart just seems hardened? And so you've just grown weary of praying. You've grown weary. The thought of going home for Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas, it just, it seems like I've had this conversation before. I've gotten rejected, I've received some mild persecution, making fun of my, my faith. I think they're just too far gone. Ask yourself, is that too hard for the Lord? Is it too hard for the Lord to change their heart? What about help in overcoming sin in your life? Help in overcoming temptation? Have you grown weary of fighting sin and just thought, well, what's the use? I just probably should accommodate this in my life and hope I don't do this too often. I can kind of grade myself on a curve and feel better about my, my disobedience. Or have you looked at that sin and said, nothing's too hard for the Lord. He can set me free from this sin. If I confess my sin and turn to Him and seek His help, 
it's possible. In fact, that's God's calling to walk in holiness. Perhaps you need to be reminded this morning, nothing's too hard for the Lord. Maybe it's restoring a broken relationship. And maybe you've just settled into thinking, this is just how life is going to be with this loved one. There's just going to be a broken relationship. Friend, Jesus is alive this morning. That means there is hope. And in Jesus, there is power to overcome broken relationships. He reconciles people to himself, and he therefore reconciles people to one another. And I wonder, have disappointments led you to grow cynical about what God might do in the future? If we're honest, we all struggle with cynicism. Sometimes we just resign ourselves to this is just the way things are going to be. But a life of faith is a life of continuing to trust God and His promises. A life of hope is turning away from despair to anticipate and wait on God's faithfulness to be revealed to His promises. Let's let's guard our hearts and ask for the Lord to lead us away from any type of cynicism that would not take Him at His word. You see, God's wisdom here in verse 14 is the wisdom you and I need, the regular reminder that calls us to respond to doubt and cynicism in our lives with the truth, nothing is too hard for the Lord. What a sense of joy and peace we get when we know that and believe that. With a rhetorical question there is followed by the promise at the end of verse 14, at the appointed time I will return to you. About this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. So the announcement of this promise, it highlighted it in appointed time, saying, put your hope in this appointed time. God said it's so. God says He has a calendar. There's an appointment on that calendar. It's about a year from now. You're going to receive this son. Well, friends, an appointed time, it's a scheduled event. Again, the Lord has a calendar. He makes appointments. He's not like you and I. Sometimes we don't show up for our appointments. People don't show up for their appointments with us. God makes appointments and He keeps them. And He always shows up. He always delivers. He's never late. He's always on time in His schedule. And the knowledge that the Lord has appointed times for His plan to unfold should motivate us to prayers of faith and actions of faith. When your confidence is in God and His appointments, when you understand that God has appointed people into salvation, well, that's when you're willing to go share the gospel with those around you. When you understand that God is appointed for the nations to be assembled around Him on the last day, well, that's when you're going to be active in obeying the command of Jesus to go and make disciples of all nations. When we understand that, that God has appointments, that nothing is too hard for Him, it's going to help us pray more. It's going to help us act more and attempt more. It takes faith to pray and to act in line with God's promises. We must have a big view of God. Well, as a church, we should pray and act in faith that God has appointments. Do you believe that the greatest years of Christian history are behind us? We can look back to the first great awakening and think, man, those are really the days for New England. We can look back to the Reformation and say, man, God was really at work 500 years ago. What about today? What might God be doing today through local churches? What kind of missions movements might be getting started today. What are we praying for? If God answered our prayers for the nations, if God answered prayers for our city, God answered the prayers for our church, what would happen in our church? Who would get converted? What nations would start to see churches appear there in their midst? You see, God has appointments. He's appointing us. We can't possibly know His secret hidden will in the future, but we can know the general truth. He has appointed 
things according to his glory, people to come to know the gospel. He's appointed for the church to be built here on earth, and nothing can stop that. God has appointments, and ultimately we are to claim these promises through the power of his Son. Well, this promise of the birth of Isaac, it looked forward to another promised birth, the appointed time of Christ's birth. Read in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, meaning an appointment, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. This was another birth, the birth of Jesus, that was not humanly possible. Jesus was conceived of a virgin. Virgins don't conceive babies. This had to be from God. His birth was foretold by the prophets, foretold by an angel, sent as a messenger of God. And Jesus did what was humanly impossible. He lived the perfect life. He perfectly obeyed God in all that he did, perfectly loved God, perfectly loved his neighbor. Nothing was too difficult for him. Not Satan and his temptation, not even death was too hard for him to overcome. Helping us know that there was no sin too hard for Jesus to pay for. There was no sin too difficult for him to forgive. For while we were still weak at the right time, at the appointed time, Christ died for the ungodly. At the right time, he died on the cross, and the risen Savior reigns today with a ministry from heaven. He's promised us, I will build my church. Not even the gates of hell will prevail against him. Nothing is too hard for him. And we are tempted to doubt. May we remember our God and our King, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And just as there was an appointed time for Jesus to come the first time, there is an appointed time for him to return. It's already on the calendar. We can't possibly know it. If anyone tells you they know it, they don't know it. You have to immediately disregard what they're saying because you can't possibly know this appointed time. God's made that clear in His Word, but it's coming. And therefore, the return of Jesus, as we look back on His first appearing at the cross and the empty tomb laying His life down, we look forward to the second appearing, the return of Jesus. And when we look at the return of Jesus, what is surely appointed to happen, it calls us to walk, it calls us to walk in holiness to walk in hope and anticipation that all that God has appointed in Jesus will come to pass. Brothers and sisters, let's live our lives in line with God's appointments. Well, the section ends with Sarah trying to hide. We read in verse 15, Sarah denied laughing. I love this part. Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And God just pulled out the no, but you did. No, but you did laugh. He knows and he sees. Sarah, she was afraid in the moment, and she denied laughing. Now, why did she think she could get away with that? I don't know. But how often do you and I speak and act as if God doesn't see what we're doing or saying? I think we could probably identify with her. Well, this response of laughter would be reflected in the name of her son, Isaac, which means laughter. Sarah doubted, and God was kind. He didn't cast her away. He gave her a gentle rebuke. God is gentle with his people. He gently rebuked her. The point of his visit was to announce a plan to her. The point of his visit was to encourage her faith, to assure Sarah to walk in faith and obedience and look forward to the fulfillment of his promise. Brother and sister in the Lord, let's ask the Lord to remind us regularly that nothing is too difficult for him, that we might walk in faith in obedience to our God and King. I leave you with this question today. How would your life be different this week if you believed more of what God has said? How would your life be different this week 
if you believed more of what God has said. Brother and sister, we don't need greater promises. We need greater faith. What more can God give us than what He's already given us in His Son, Jesus? We embrace God's promises by faith. We cling to them in hope and anticipation. As we behold God by faith, we have the joy of walking in fellowship with Him and enjoying His presence. May we give ourselves this week to asking God to grow us in our faith, that we would know greater and deeper fellowship with God. There is no greater joy than knowing this God, no greater joy than walking with Him, no greater joy than serving this promise-keeping God. There is no greater comfort than to recognize nothing is too hard for Him. Let's pray for grace to trust Him more. Let's do that now. Father, we are so quick to forget quick to forget your promises, quick to forget what you've promised to do, quick to forget testimonies in our own lives of how you have shown yourself and proved yourself time and time again to be faithful. Lord, we're in need of regular reminders, so we ask by the power of your Spirit, through the truth of your Word, through the help of your people here, that you would remind us this week, nothing is too hard for you. Father, grow our hunger and our appetite, we ask, to walk in deeper fellowship with you, that we would know the fullness of joy that there is in you and your son Jesus. We ask for grace to trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen.